Welcome to the Psych NP Cast, a podcast made specifically for psychiatric mental health nurse practitioners and their peers. You're about to enjoy, be educated, and entertained about your profession. Just remember, folks, the views you hear on this show are those of our amazing guests. Always validate what you do through your best practice guidelines and patient care standards. Now, let's get to the show. Welcome indeed. I'm Ed Stern, your host of PsychMPCast. My pronouns are he, him, his. This is where psych mental health nurse practitioners and their peers come to enjoy, be educated, and grow. Before I introduce this episode topic today, I want to thank everybody who's been listening to the show. We've had a remarkably high volume of listeners, so I guess that means you're coming back to each episode because you're enjoying the content. And we're going to continue to do our best to provide you with amazing guests. If you want to be a guest, please take a look at the show notes. There's information on how to apply to be a speaker. Speaking of guests... This episode, I want to invite you to sit back and meet and listen to Erin Harrell from InFocus Psychiatry in South Haven, Mississippi. We're going to talk about autism spectrum disorder in youth. Let's take it away. Erin, go ahead and introduce yourself. I'm Erin Harrell. I'm a psychiatric nurse practitioner and with a um, practice in South Haven, Mississippi. I live in Fernando, Mississippi, and I have had my practice since August of 2016. That's great. What's the name of your practice? In Focus Psychiatry. That's great. And it's in South Haven, Mississippi, right? Yes, right outside of Memphis, Tennessee. Fantastic. Well, thanks for joining us today. Thank you for having me. We're going to talk a little bit about um, autism spectrum disorder in kids. Yeah, that's kind of been the population that I've gravitated towards. I didn't know that it was going to be. I started out with mostly adults. And then the more experience I got with children, the more I I sort of gravitated towards that. And then when I opened my practice in South Haven, I was connected with a psychologist who specializes in autism. And she spent a lot of time with me, helping me to learn that population because she really desperately needed someone who could treat that she trusted And um, so she kind of groomed me towards that and I loved it. And so I, as I got new um, nurse practitioners in my practice that I could sort of move the adult population to, to, and I was able to open up more availability towards this population. It grew and grew and grew to the point that I do have a very big base of mostly children on the spectrum, but some adults also. That's great. That's great. Um, What are some of the key diagnostic indicators for autism spectrum disorder? Well, um, I, you know, obviously there's DSM criteria Mm -hmm. and I'll say that the majority of the kids that I see do fit that. There's the, the, the one that you probably will see first, is the deficits in the social emotional reciprocity. So 
you know, difficulty communicating in social settings the way you and I are used to communicating, difficulty understanding emotion, facial expressions, body language, differences in um, cadence and mm. lilts in the language and the speech patterns of people that mean something, mean, you know, different types of emotions, but it doesn't necessarily mean something to kids who are on the spectrum. They just don't seem to hear and see those little nuances in our conversation. And that's the nonverbal and the verbal deficits that they have. Um, and then there are, you know, the difficulty maintaining understanding relationships, complex emotion goes into, you know, our relationships. And so that definitely affects those. And then you've got the um, behavioral patterns, the restricted patterns, the repetitive patterns. You tend to see um, things like hand flapping or spinning, different stimming kinds of behaviors. Um, you'll see some very concrete thinking. Things are very black and white. There's no, there's no gray. Sometimes you'll get some differences like echolalia, palealalia, you know, repeating their own words, mm. repeating what others say to them, um, things that look a lot like sort of obsessive compulsive behaviors. A lot of parents will say, well, I noticed when my child was very, very young, he or she always was lining up their toys in very specific patterns and wanted everything to be perfect and straight and coordinated in some way. Um, a lot of need for structure and routine and any divergence from those routines on a daily basis can cause some really um, some emotional distress because mm -hmm. these kids tend to thrive on that routine and the sameness and the predictability of it. And so an unexpected change in a daily routine or not knowing what's to come in the day can be very distressing. Sure. A lot of these kids will be hypersensitive to environmental stimuli, whether it's tactile, um, auditory, visual. I've heard um, one parent told me that a kid, her, her child was showing a lot of distress, specifically in the classroom at school. And it was in one particular room in the school and they could not figure out why the child was so consistently distressed in that one particular room and they found out it and I don't remember exactly what it was but it was there was a um like a power tower plant something electrical mm -hmm. that was really close to that side of the school and you know there's a a, sm a really low hum that most right, people yeah. don't hear but almost child, imperceptible yeah yes and the child was hearing that and it was just so distressing and he couldn't express that that's what was going on mm -hmm. so it's little things like that sometimes it's the seams and socks or the tags and shirts or food textures i've seen some kids who are actually malnourished because they don't eat they they cannot tolerate so many textures and even the act of swallowing can be overstimulating and gag they'll gag and have a hard time eating Correct me if I'm wrong, but you know, the fact that we now identify it as a spectrum, right? You can mm -hmm. have people with, you know, dramatic experiences like, like what you're describing or dramatic symptoms, like what you're describing, but also 
remarkably subtle. Yes. Yeah. And those are, those are the tough ones. Those are the ones that I don't necessarily know, you know, until much, much later in the relationship. Sure. They haven't already been diagnosed. Mm-hmm. Um, I won't, I won't catch that. I haven't been trained to see that and to catch it, especially in an adult. Sure. Yeah. But much later in the in the um, patient clinician relationship, sometimes I'll start to pick up on. Yeah, it's the subtlety, subtlety. right? I mean, it's yeah. you know, and and we all of us may probably even know people in our own personal lives where you're like, mm, yeah, probably somewhere else. Yeah, spectrum. yeah, yeah. Exactly. I think that that's yeah. I mean, and that comes with experience and and getting to know the individual and and you know, starting to put the pieces right. together. And I think that's what's kind of, you know, when you look at it from a diagnostic perspective, I guess I see this and perhaps it's me oversimplifying it, but I see this as a conversation of, you know, what's less important is, is the diagnosis and more important of us managing the symptoms and helping the people, right. Manage the symptoms, whether it's connected, right. You know, we're not truly treating autism spectrum disorder. We're treating the symptomology associated with autism spectrum disorder. Exactly. Much like bipolar disorder is, is really a spectrum disorder. I mean, yeah. we've found that also. Mm-hmm. And, and so you're not necessarily treating bipolar disorder. You're treating the symptoms that the patient is reporting. And so whether someone has autism or not, you're going to treat whatever symptom is the most distressing, and decreases their quality of life. And that may be, difficulty focusing or, or it may be obsessive compulsive tendencies intrusive thoughts that interfere with function yeah and and does it matter what does it matter what the etiology is of the intrusive right. thought as much as right you know i mean as no as much as something else yeah <laughs> it doesn't yeah because we're going to use the same medications yeah, to treat right exactly the, the difference yeah. would be in the type of therapy that mm-hmm. we would recommend mm-hmm. Yeah, I think that that's, you know, I mean, that's kind of the key, the key piece of it. Mm-hmm. Are there specific assessment things that we, we do want to be doing? Uh, yeah, I think our, our ability, our specific ability as, as psych MPs is fairly limited because we mm-hmm. don't have the training of a psychologist. Um, the, you know, there are several screening tests. Most of these are used in primary care. And so, you know, sometimes you're going to see this caught at the well child checkup because primary care providers are often doing, they use the the MCHAT, which is the modified checklist for autism and toddlers. And I think it's a fairly standard screening test that's used at regular well child checkups. It's not necessarily very sensitive. And so they, they're going to probably catch the kids who are more on the extreme end of the spectrum. Um, but there are a few screening tests that are free and have some good data for being, you know, as sensitive as it can be as for a screening test, a, a brief screening test, oh, the autism good. behavior checklist, the autism spectrum quotient, which that one is is kind of convenient. It you can access it online and it's actually filled out and scored online. It scores it right there for you in your browser. Which one is that? <clears throat> the autism spectrum quotient, the ASQ. Okay. And we'll then sure there, in the show notes. Okay. Yeah. The childhood autism spectrum test K 
podcast is the acronym for that one. And then the M chat, which I mentioned previously, which is commonly used in primary care. Yeah. Okay. Right. Yeah. The most important thing is to get um, probably uh, if you have done the screenings or if you have a high degree of suspicion that there is some autism going on, uh, an autistic process going on with the child, I think it's very important to get them referred to psychology to get full testing done. Mm -hmm. That's the only really complete testing and diagnosis that can be done in autism. Yeah. So it behooves us to probably have a good relationship with some of the neuropsych evaluators in our area. Yes. So that we know who to refer to and, and Mm -hmm. yeah. Yeah. Um, and I, um, you know, I told you beforehand that I was using as my primary reference, American Academy of Pediatrics. And one of the things that I didn't really realize was that there is an increased risk for accidental death in this population. Hmm. And it makes sense because there's not necessarily an awareness of the dangers of different activities that, you know, kids will normally engage in. And mm-hmm. a lot of kids on the spectrum will have some um, ADHD. It's pretty common for kids on the spectrum to be very hyperactive and <clears throat> less aware of the dangers in their environment. And there's elopement. And if they um, are overstimulated or are upset and can't communicate what is upsetting them, they'll run. You know, that fight or flight process will kick in. And, and so they'll run often. They'll run away from school. They'll jump out of a moving car. They'll run away from home. And so there is, I can see how that makes sense, that there's a, um, an increased risk for accidental death. And so getting them diagnosed and getting the community resources that they need as, at as young an age as possible is crucial. Yeah. And I mean, it's, is it fair to say that how, and I, I accept the fact that you're not a neuropsych psychologist or anything, but (laughs) you know, in your experience, Mm -hmm. is there a correlation between autism spectrum disorder and, you know, functional IQ? Like, like how do you see the two things overlapping functional iq or or at least just like you know well let's be let's be more simplistic street smarts i mean the ability to function to you know to intellectually manage yes i think so um that's not a scientific scientific. no fact (laughs) Mm -hmm. um but yeah i would say that in general the children and the adults that i see who are on the spectrum, um, they certainly vary widely in their everyday ability to function in relationships and in the workplace and in the, the academic environment. But overall, there, there may be some greater pitfalls for people who fall on the spectrum because mm-hmm. they have those deficits in communication and perhaps don't necessarily know how to navigate 
things that would seem commonplace for us, um, like job interviews or, um, you know, maintaining and navigating relationships that are important for advancing in school and becoming associated with the the groups, whether they be peer groups or um, authority figures that are good for you (laughs) to to get where you need to be academically and socially. Yeah. It's the lack of being able to sort of maybe connect those social indicators. I mean, they they could be extremely book smart, could be extremely highly, you know, highly able to learn. Um, but it's the ability to process, uh, the, the social cue. Um, yeah. Yeah. And, you know, teenagers on the spectrum have just as much, uh, risk of being lured in by, you know, glitz and glamour and things that appear attractive on the surface. Yeah. So, you know, every teenager has the propensity for being drawn in by, what mom and dad might not consider a very great social group. And I think kids on the spectrum probably have a little bit of a higher risk for that also because they can be drawn in by some things that aren't necessarily desirable um, Mm -hmm. and not understand the dangers maybe, you know, like I can remember when I was a teenager, I fully understood the dangers and I didn't care. I was indestructible, right? (laughs) (laughs) But a kid on the spectrum may begin to, to split those relationships. Mom and dad are just keeping me down. They don't understand me, um, which is a common theme for teenagers. But I think kids on the spectrum are going to feel that much more viscerally and make a much more black and white distinction between these are my friends. These are my parents. They're out to destroy me. Like I've heard kids say that they hate me. They're just going to destroy me. And they're talking about their parents who are really bending over backwards to try to save them and to give them the best possible chance. And it, and it's a, and that's gotta be a, you know, that's an awkward time because from a, from a childhood development perspective, I mean, there's so much normalcy in, in what they're going through, but because of the, the, the autism there, you know, their thought processes are, are well, just, I mean, they're just different. So yeah, yeah, exactly. And and there's hormones that come into play at that time. (laughs) Yeah. Like every teenager. No, yeah, exactly. And hormones, you know, they are terrible. <laughs> they destroy people's lives. They are terrible but, and yet so good. But, yeah, right. <laughs> the kids on the spectrum really start to have some, um, a lot of times I'll see a, um, some, some serious mood issues during the teenage years when they're headed into that um, period of puberty. And I see a lot of kids on the spectrum who will engage in cutting. They'll engage in self-harm behaviors, which is not uncommon for kids on the spectrum, even from, you know, toddlerhood. They, mm-hmm. they do engage in head banging and they'll hit themselves and they can be physically aggressive. But kids on the spectrum in um, the adolescent period will a lot of times engage in cutting. Their emotions are 
something they don't understand their own emotions a lot of times mm-hmm. and they will mm-hmm. say things that get them in trouble like I'm just going to kill myself or I wish I was dead or I'm just going to come and shoot you all at the school, you know, and it doesn't mean the same necessarily that, w- that we do. If we were, if I, you and I think that sometimes, gosh, I, I'm just going to kill myself. You know, that's mm-hmm. a silly thought. We don't mean it. Kids on the spectrum will say those things out loud and they don't understand how socially inappropriate that is and how other people don't have to, other people have to take that seriously. Schools sure, have to take sure. that seriously now. And so I will often have, you know, a parent bring a child to me and say, we've got to do a risk assessment. He can't go back to school mm. until he has a risk assessment, which is kind of scary because I'm putting my license on the line there by saying, yeah, this kid's perfectly safe. He said he was going to shoot up the school, but. <laughs> well, that's <laughs> when you, you can another time to work with neuropsych. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Sometimes you have to bring other people into it unless you know the child really, really, really well. And mm-hmm. you've heard them make, make statements like that and understood that it's not a heartfelt thing. It's just a, bleeding thought and I don't know how to deal with this and so I'm, I'm reverting back to my three-year-old you know I'm going to shoot you mentality yeah yeah and I think that's uh, I mean that's sort of the key behind the you know the the thinking process and and you know teenagers since we're talking about those right uh, you know the typical 14 year old may say something to, you know, like that, or, um, you know, I hate my parents or whatever with intent to be hurtful, um, you know, and, and other forms of things that are just part of that, you know, trying to get a point across. So what I think I hear you saying is, is that with autism spectrum disorder, you know, they may be saying that without intent, but it's just because it's a, you know, Right. They, they don't have that. They don't necessarily always have that in, internal dialogue. Yeah. 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 There's no way anybody can know for sure, sure. Sure. But you have to, if you have a good relationship with the family and the patient, you can make a pretty educated guess about it. Mm-hmm. Sometimes maybe. <laughs> yeah. And again, that's where the relationship building, you know, right. com- comes into play, right? We may not be able to make that assessment on the first visit with the yeah. patient, but as we get to know, oh, them, no, yeah, definitely yeah, not. right. Definitely. Well, that makes sense. Yeah. It's about that fostered long-term relationship. Um, and, you know, and getting to know them, getting to know the family, understanding the family dynamic. Um, yeah. Getting, yeah. Which, and that kind of leads, um, into one of the points that has been driven home very recently for me. Um, I had, I, I have, a child who I strongly suspect is on the spectrum and have for some time so much so that I often forget that she hasn't gotten a formal diagnosis and I proceed as though she has. Mm -hmm. And then once we get into talking about it with mom, I realize, oh, wait, no, she's never been tested. And so what happened recently, her, her aggression has begun ramping up. She's I think 10 or 11 female and it's about the time when that emotional roller coaster starts to become even worse. She's headed into adolescence. She's always tended to be a little 
on the physically aggressive side towards her siblings, towards her parents, towards herself. And um, her therapist, which I've always, um, I always encourage that, you know, my patients have a relationship with a counselor, or therapist, psychologist. Mm -hmm. And um, her therapist began telling mom that she believes that she has a personality disorder and that, yeah, that she's looking at possibly some sociopathic tendencies. And that's when I realized, again, I'm sure, oh my gosh, this child has never been diagnosed with autism. I really, really think that that's what we're looking at yeah. here. And so I had to talk to mom without, you know, being unprofessional about what this therapist was saying. Um, you know, I need to maintain good relationships with all of the sure. people who are providing sure. you don't want to call mental health care in my community. Absolutely. Yeah. yeah. But I really, really wanted to um, emphasize to mom that, that we don't need to fall down that hole yet. Let's not discount this as personality disorder. This child is number one, too young to be diagnosed with a personality disorder. And number two, we have to look at all of the things that we've been seeing over the years that point to an autism spectrum diagnosis that also tend to overlap with the personality disorders, the, mm -hmm. the you know, aggression, the disruptive, you know, relationships, the, uh, the cold affect, the, the sort of flat, cold unemotional affect, the inability mm. to empathize, the lack of remorse, you know, all of those are things that we mm. will associate with conduct disorder. And we all know what conduct disorder <laughs> turns yeah. into later. Yeah. Right. And, and so I, I had to do some damage control there. And um, fortunately I do have still that very good relationship with the psychologist that I had mentioned earlier. And although she has relocated um, to a different region in Mississippi, we're, we still do work very closely together. And so, you know, I sent out an SOS text message, mm. you know, what's the best kind of screening I can do for this child. I've got to get her in with an ABA therapist. I've got to get, you know, some resources going for her that will, show mom that we're you're headed down the wrong path with that personality disorder mm -hmm. you know kind of thing and she was uh kind enough to send me a um a uh testing booklet that she uses for diagnosis and she said she would score it for me just you know it's a parent right. scale that's filled out she said, you know, get it to the mom, have her do it, send it back to me. I'll score it for you that we can at least get a preliminary diagnosis for her and get her into some ABA therapy and um, get her on a waiting list and hopefully, you know, advance her on a waiting list locally to mm -hmm. get mm -hmm. tested. It's very, very hard to get kids tested sure. in it less than nine months because there's such a waiting list, such a demand. Wow. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I guess that the case you mentioned right there, there are times when the diagnosis, as we were saying before, the diagnosis doesn't matter, treat the symptoms. This is one of those times when 
right? When you're looking yeah. at all the different differentials, different differentials. Yeah. What, like that's too that. many, that's, that's too many differences. <laughs> yeah. The, when you're looking at all the differentials, right. And, you know, and this, in this particular case, the diagnosis is going to send you down two very, very different treatment very. pathways and, and stigma pathways and so right. many other things that that's, you know, so essential at that point, you know, it's like, you were managing that child pretty well up until that point without the diagnosis, you were managing the symptoms, yeah. but now, you know, as the symptoms are becoming more dramatic, more pronounced, truly needing to, to get off of the world of differentials and get to the definitive diagnosis is, you know, it's going to be yeah. so much more key. Yeah, exactly. And I think in autism that it, that is, that is one area where we need a diagnosis no matter what, because the kids are going to, they're going to qualify for resources that, that they wouldn't have without the diagnosis. Mm. Insurance requires a diagnosis of autism in order to get the um, ABA therapy paid for. And that's the only kind of therapy that has shown real success with people who have autism. Applied behavior analysis. It's hard to find that. Also, yeah, there's, yeah. there's a waiting list. And so they've got to have the diagnosis for insurance to pay for that. Um, and then, you know, they're going to require a lot of support within the school system. And if you've got that autism diagnosis, the school system will recognize it. They, they have no choice. They have to recognize sure, it. Sure. They will be able to get the um, accommodations the IEP possibly that, that they need to be successful in that environment. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And I think that's, that's a very interesting and valid point, right? You know, these are one of those times where, right, where the systems exist to bring resources and services to bear, but because of how much effort, energy, and time it can take, to to get there right the sooner you start when you start having that you know that gut feeling the the better right because there i'm sure there are parts of this country Absolutely. where testing testing and access to aba kinds of therapy are are easier but i can't fathom anywhere in this country it's just like oh yeah no problem we'll get you in tomorrow right right yeah i don't know I hope that there are places where it's easier. <laughs> Wouldn't it but, be? Yeah. yeah, it's not here. I've never heard of it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Well, I mean, it's, it's, yeah. I, well, I don't think it's easy to get psychiatric and, you know, behavioral care pretty much anywhere in this country. I, anywhere. You know? yeah. But yeah, certainly some places are probably a little easier relative to others, you know? Yeah, probably. <laughs> <laughs> um, do you think it's time? Can, can we move into a conversation about medication and medication approach, or do we need to yeah, cover sure. a little bit more about the history? No. Okay. okay. So, so obviously some people come to you already on meds, whether it was primary care or somebody else. Um, do we, so they come in, yeah. they're on a list of medications kind of, or, or, or not, where, where do we go from there? Yeah. So in the beginning, um, a lot of the kids that I were, was treating were inherited. They were coming to me from other providers, whether it was because the, um, there aren't a whole lot of psychiatrists in my area and mm -hmm. the ones 
that we do have around here are older. A lot of them have retired since I've been in practice. Mm. Some of them have died. So we are losing psychiatric providers faster than we're gaining them around Mm. here. Mm. Um, And so, yeah, I inherited a lot of kids who had been with other providers and were seeking a new provider for whatever reason. Some of them were unhappy with their treatment. Some of them had lost whoever they were seeing before. And so, yes, initially I got a lot of kids who were already on medications. Um, Some of them had been on tons of stuff and nothing was working. And some of them, you know, were on medicines that had worked well for many years and weren't working anymore. Mm. What I will often see at least in the initial stages of treatment when kids have not been on medication for a long time, but they come to me in the, you know, first stages of of seeking medication treatment. A lot of, I think a lot of maybe, maybe providers who don't know autism very well aren't used to treating autism. Um, or treating the symptoms of autism, I should say, will tend to um, sort of knee-jerk reaction, risperidone and Abilify. You know, we those are approved. They're FDA approved for the treatment of irritability associated with autism. Um, and even kids who don't necessarily have a diagnosis of autism, if they're aggressive, risperidone and Abilify. Mm-hmm. You know, they, they're a lot of times a quick fix and Mm -hmm. it doesn't require a lot of thinking pediatricians primary care and even you know some psych providers will go well it's abilify and resveratone well those are those are heavy drugs and if you're putting a child who is three four five six seven eight years old on an antipsychotic then you're potentially looking at a lifetime on an antipsychotic. Mm. And if you think about the long-term side effects of antipsychotics, why? Why do we want to do that at mm-hmm. such a young age? Why not look for something different? Because there are other medications that could potentially treat these symptoms without such a heavy baggage of side effects. Uh, yeah. Um, a lot of kids are put on stimulants really early on because yes, they're not focusing. Yes, they're hyperactive. But that's not necessarily what they need and stimulants can cause more agitation. Mm-hmm. Kids on the spectrum will present with symptoms that look like other things, but when you scrape everything away, what you're left with is a lot of anxiety. That's what I see is they're super, super anxious because they don't understand their emotions. They don't understand other people's emotions. Mm -hmm. They're living in a world where they can't communicate what they're feeling and they don't understand why other people's behaviors are the way they are. They don't function well with changes in routine and things happening unpredictably and being Um, asked to transition from one activity to another without preparation. Those things are very disruptive and they will 
very frequently just lapse into that fight or flight. Some kids will run away. Some kids will lash out because they don't know what else to do. They're afraid and they don't understand what's going on. And a lot of times we can treat that anxiety and get a get really far and and not have to use some of the heavier drugs at least initially maybe down the line we'll have to but if we could put it off that's better in the long run for those kids i really like the alpha blockers i, I use guanfacine a lot it mm-hmm. works well for emotional regulation it works well for hyperactivity anxiety treats a lot of things at once treats sleep and focus and you know it's such a broad it's it's got such a broad spectrum of symptoms that it can treat and its side effect profile is relatively benign compared to a lot of the medicines that we use in psychiatry yeah and kids tend to tolerate it well you know they their blood pressure will tolerate rather high doses of guanfacine a lot of times Surprisingly, so I probably wouldn't be able to tolerate it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. So you, so you use the guanfazine to help manage the anxiety and and the inattentiveness. If I see hyperactivity, difficulty focusing, emotional dysregulation, and I'm there's a high degree of suspicion that anxiety is underlying a lot of this, then yeah, guanfacine is typically uh-huh. the first thing I go for. Okay. If there's just anxiety, if the child is just classic anxiety symptoms, maybe some like very obsessive compulsive kind of tendencies, mm-hmm. they can say, I'm worried a lot. They're, they pick, if they're picking, skin picking or chewing their fingernail mm-hmm. bloody mm-hmm. or just very, very classic anxiety symptoms. And, and there's not the hyperactivity and the academic difficulties and aggression, things like that. Then I'll sometimes start with an SSRI too. Mm, okay. So avoiding the antipsychotic route, identifying maybe the underlying symptoms that are causing the implied aggression and other things like that. Yes. And, and yeah. okay. And talking to the parents explaining the rationale what? talk for this. to the parent right <laughs> i know it's what? crazy yeah <laughs> yeah i always tell parents i don't like throwing pills at kids mm-hmm. i don't like making you feel like your child is a guinea pig but you need to understand that it may feel like that it may seem that way because it may take a while it may take several medication trials before we get it right I let them know on the front end what to expect and then they're prepared for it if it happens and then they don't feel like I don't know what I'm doing for one thing and um, and that I'm just throwing pills at them to to try to make them go away. I'm working with some upset expectations. Yeah. Isn't that pretty much always the case? I mean, you know, right. We yeah, seem nursing to do that. 101. Yeah, yeah. Set expectations we for your patients. Set the expectations in the psychiatry world. We, you know, we do have many of our patients feel like guinea pigs, right? Because there's, mm-hmm. you know, and the analogy I often use is, you know, sometimes the first blood pressure medication a medical doctor gives you doesn't work. 
and you know we're going to try other blood pressure medications um the difference is is that the blood pressure medication will work within a day or two whereas the ones that we need right. to get in and alter brain chemistry you know as as every stall textbook ever says right we got to wait we got to wait, <laughs> yeah. wait we got to wait we got to wait yeah yes i often use the analogy I can't do a blood test um, and tell you what medicine is going to work for you. Whereas if you're sick with an infection, I can draw blood, I can send it off to a culture and I can figure out what antibiotic is going to treat the illness mm-hmm. that you have. And psychiatry is totally different. We have no way of testing that. A lot of people want to ask about genetic testing. Mm-hmm. And I explain to them that it's, not a silver bullet. It gives us a little bit of information. Sometimes it's useful information. Other times it doesn't help at all because just because every single medicine is, you know, in the green on that genetic test doesn't doesn't mean it's going to mean that you're not going to have side effects or that it's going to work for you. Right. right? Yeah. Yeah. I've, I've, I have, I've mixed emotions about the genetic testing, but you know, every once in a while I've bumped into that occasional person that says, yeah, all the medications that are in the red are the ones that really help me, (laughs) you know? So so you're like, okay, okay. whoops. Yeah. Whatever. But it's, you know, I mean, it's because it's different for each person, right? We're talking genetics, whereas there's so many other, you know, physiologic aspects to it as well. Exactly. Yeah. yeah. That come into play with medication. Absolutely. Absolutely. And it can be helpful. There are situations where I'll recommend it. If I've been through a few trials and I'm just not getting it right, if that kid is having a lot of side effects from the medicines that we've used, especially if they have an insurance that will pay for the genetic testing, like Medicaid, that being Medicaid pays. Yeah. Yeah. And I'll I'll say, let's do it. Let's find out what's going on here. Do you have reduced folic acid conversion? Because that's something that we can easily supplement and help mm-hmm. a kid with, you mm-hmm. know, some emotional dysregulation. Or, uh, you know, are there some significant metabolic differences? Are you burning this medicine up? Or are you retaining it and not clearing it properly? You know, sometimes mm-hmm. those are, those are expensive. Yeah. And, and we can try that. Yeah. We can see that by trial and error, but I mean, what we are learning about genetics and medications is, you know, leaps ahead of where we were only a few years ago. Yeah. You know, yeah. um, I, I remember when I was a nurse, um, working for a, a huge healthcare company with an EHR, um, the data they were able to just call out of their electronic medical record about what blood pressure medications work best based on patients identified ethnicities granted not an overly scientific oh, explanation but just yeah. you know when people were identifying with an ethnicity and they had asked some other information about you know um like their you know where 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 their families are you know genetically from essentially mm-hmm. and just able to see that you know this particular calcium channel blocker or this particular ARB mm-hmm. or this particular ACE anecdotally works better. I mean, it's just, you know, where we've come from that anecdotal data to, you know, yeah. to where we are now is real world. You know, it's true. Fascinating. Yeah. Yeah. It is. I hope that we'll get that, that somewhere close to there someday. With yeah. Pediatric meds. Wouldn't that be great? <laughs> yeah. 
but if it gives some guidance and some guidelines and some insight, especially like you had mentioned, right. You know, if you're looking at that MTHFR mutation and, you know, and some of those other kinds of things where we're saying, okay, you know, Hey, we can supplement you with L-methylfolate or something like that, right. you know, make so many things in your body work, work better than, you know, yeah. by all means. Yeah. Yes, yeah. absolutely. I love that. <laughs> yeah, that's true. Um, Okay, so we talked about some of the medication, medicating ADHD in in, in autism spectrum disorder. Um, what about sleep disturbance? Oh yeah, that's a big one. A lot of the kid, almost all the kids, I would say. As a matter of fact, so many that when a parent says, "Oh, they sleep great," I go, "What?" <laughs> <laughs> it's so unusual. How, how aware are you of their sleep cycle? <laughs> yeah, are you sure? <laughs> That's right. <laughs> right. When the bedroom door is closed. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I have a lot of parents who tell me, you know, that their child never slept from the time they came home from the hospital. They never slept, never, 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 and still don't to this day. So yeah, sleep is a big deal. And it's a big deal, not just because they need to sleep and they can't be up wandering in the house at night, but you cannot expect to successfully treat things like focus and anxiety and irritability during the day if the kid's getting three hours of sleep at night. Yeah, I mean, that's yeah. ridiculous. I'm going to be irritable and aggressive during the day if I sleep three hours at night for, you know, right, five exactly. years. I can't help but to think, <laughs> I can't help but to think that, you know, parents who say they sleep great is like, maybe you sleep too well yeah. <laughs> if you're not aware. That's what I'm kind of wondering. <laughs> Not unless the kid tells me if the kid can sit there and say, yeah, I mean, like if they're really genuinely surprised, mm -hmm. like, oh yeah, I sleep fine. And you can tell um, mm -hmm. kids are a little bit too honest for their own good. They tell them themselves too <laughs> easily. Yeah. Especially <laughs> the younger ones. Yes. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Um, but yeah, that they um, often will not sleep well. And we have to, I, I'll tell parents, let's focus on sleep first. I know that you're here at your wit's end and you need your child to stop clawing your eyes out every time you tell her no, or we have to go to school or, you know, mm -hmm. something every day thing. I promise you, if we can get sleep under control and get them well rested, you're going to see number one, a decrease in those behaviors during the day. And number two, a better response to medications that treat those things. And they'll often agree. They know because they're up during the night with them too. And they need sleep. <laughs> they they could so use their sleep. Yeah. They're going to go, yes, please. Let's get them <laughs> sleeping. <laughs> so what approach do you usually take with these, um, these kids for sleep? For sleep? Yeah, I'll, I'll use, um, sometimes I'll try to start with, again, guanfacine, extended release, the, the long acting, because mm -hmm. if we can dose that at night and they sleep with it, then we're going to get benefit during the day. Also, mm -hmm. it's going to stay in their system pretty much 24 hours for most kids. That's a, that's a perfect solution. I love that. Mm -hmm. Um, if it's not enough, then, um, we will move on to clonidine because clonidine is more sedating and they can, I often will see kids easily tolerate clonidine at night, even if they're taking 
um, the extended release guanfacine. I know that sounds dangerous, tricky, you know, mm. because you're layering two of those alpha blockers, but you know, even dosing both of them at night, you, you have to be careful with your doses. You have to consider both when you're dosing it. But again, these kids can handle pretty high doses of these medications. Mm. They typically need a fairly hefty dose of whatever it is for sleep to get them sleeping. It mm. really surprises me. Sometimes it's enough to put down a horse <laughs> to get these kids to sleep. Yeah. Um, and, you know, on on the topic of sleep, I'm not, in general, a proponent of using uh, quetiapine for sleep. Mm. But um, some of the some of some kids with the more severe behavioral issues who do end up requiring a mood stabilizer of some sort. Um, I'll see a lot of medication failures with risperidone and abilify abilify will often cause activation abilify will cause the akathisia i think mm -hmm. is what i'm seeing because they'll stop sleeping or sleep less they'll be more irritable and i have to think that that's akathisia going on they can't tell me that that's what they're feeling a lot of times and then sometimes risperidone just doesn't work for whatever reason and I'll, I'll move on to Seroquel and sometimes these kids will need Seroquel to sleep mm. and I'm not going to use two antipsychotics. And so if they end up having to graduate to Seroquel for sleep, then we'll use that for mm -hmm. the daytime mood regulation, also irritability. And obviously you're managing that on top of the ability just to simply wake Right. <laughs> you know, right yeah. Right. yeah. <laughs> getting them to sleep is and one thing. Getting that, them to, yeah. I don't find that that's a problem. A lot of times, once we get those kids sleeping, regardless of what it takes, the parent almost always say, they wake up in such a good mood. It's so easy now. It's not a battle to get them out of bed to get ready for school anymore because they're well rested. And that's because you're using using meds that really necessarily. I mean, unless you're moving into the the Seroquels and others, right? You're you're not necessarily you're really not snowing them with things like clonidine and and guifazine. Right. Yeah, yeah. Right. And the ones who require something like Seroquel to sleep, you're not snowing them either. They mm -hmm. just need. I mean, I start at 25 milligrams yeah. and work up from there. Mm -hmm. And we get we. I increase by 25 milligram increments. So it's not like we are rushing into a, you know, a snow dose of it. <laughs> a big medication hit. Yeah. 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 Terrific. Any other thoughts that you might have that you want to share with us? Um, well, you know, the medicines, while we're on the subject of medicines, um, methylphenidates work well for ADHD. We've got the randomized controlled trials to back that up. Fluoxetine mm -hmm. has the trials. Uh, Depakote has the trials. You know, they all have their place. Mm -hmm. um, Stratera is, Atomoxetine is one of those medicines that I see. I probably, and of course, this is anecdotal evidence. <laughs> mm -hmm. um, I see good results with that in this population better probably than I see in the general population. And mm -hmm. I don't know if it's because we're treating anxiety with, you know, it's an, it's 
basically an SNRI. And I don't know if it's because we're treating anxiety and focus at the same time, but I do have several kids on the spectrum. Which medication well. are you referring to? I'm sorry. Atomoxetine. Atomoxetine. Okay. Stratera. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Right. Yeah. Yeah. And you know, something that I didn't know until just in the last few years is that there is a little bit of evidence that Stratera can treat ticks and stuttering. I've seen kids mm. who stutter get better with Stratera. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um you know, if the alpha blockers aren't tolerated, if they're too sedating or if the kid's blood pressure doesn't tolerate it, Stratera can be a good option. Mm. Um, and then the ABA therapy, that's a huge part of it because medicine's a band-aid. We know that mm-hmm. not going to get to the underlying issues. Those kids have to learn how to function in so socially appropriate ways. They have to learn to read those cues, those body facial cues, mm-hmm. social skills groups, um, one-on-one ABA therapy, reaching out and making connections with resources in your community, even, even further flung, you know, a little bit outside of your community, parents are going to be, willing to drive they're going to be willing to go out of their way a lot of times to get the um the services that their kids need because they need it they Mm -hmm. they have to for the quality of life of the entire family the child needs the best services that they can get and families often will recognize that and i have found that um you know i've got kids who travel to tupelo which is roughly an hour and a half away Mm -hmm. to get the ABA services that they need. Mm. So, you know, cultivating relationships with other healthcare providers in your area, whether it's primary care or um, ABA therapists, psychologists, just getting to know them and letting them know that you want to work as part of a team. They're going to be very receptive to that because they're in it because they want to help this population to be well yeah no that's a valid point right knowing your resources in your neighborhood knowing knowing the services not only the professional licensed services but as well as uh, you know the community services too i would think is you know is also a, a key right are there yeah are there yeah, special support deal. services in the community for kids with an autism with autism spectrum disorder and the like yeah yeah exactly there's actually a nonprofit organization in my area that um, provides support services for families of people with autism and intellectual disabilities. And they'll have monthly supper club meetings for some of the older teenagers and young adults where they get together, they eat, they have to socialize. Some of them don't want to go, but their parents make them go and (laughs) and it's good for them. They probably have fun once they're there. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. They'll do art projects they'll do vocational training and some of these kids will go on to you know hold jobs it it may be a a specialized job it may be Mm -hmm. a job that is um in the community we have a something called ability works Mm -hmm. in our community and they employ people on the spectrum both with and without intellectual disabilities and it's an excellent resource and these 
they get to feel like normal adults. Mm. They don't feel like they're just you know, infinitely children living at home with their parents. Yeah. Yeah. Well, thank you. This has been a, it's been a great conversation. Um, yeah, again, for the audience, thank you. no, thank you for the audience go ahead and just uh, let everybody know how they can um, find your website. Oh, it's, um, what is my website? <laughs> it's uh, www.infocuspsych.com. Okay, great. Aaron, thank you so much for joining us today. I really appreciate You're welcome. it. Thank you, Ed. Thank you. This has been cool. I appreciate it. Yeah, it has been fun. Well, that's it for this episode of Psych and Geekcast. We'll see you in our next episode. Don't forget to tell your friends and in whatever podcast system you're in, don't forget to rate us. That helps us get found by other psych NPs. We'll see you next time.